Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Taking a look at XBT on my Bloomberg terminal, Bitcoin, $32,490, up 4.7% today up 550% off of its March 2020 low, leading some folks to speculate whether this, is, this move is real or if it's a speculative bubble. Our next guest has a firm opinion on that. Anthony Scaramucci, founder and co-managing partner of Skybridge Capital, joins us here. Uh, Anthony, thanks so much for joining us here. You guys at Skybridge launching a Bitcoin fund. Tell us about that. Well, first of all, great to be on. I, I, you know, we've done a ton of research on Bitcoin. Uh, after my disastrous fiasco in the White House, I returned back to my own firm. And it took about three years for us to get comfortable, frankly, with Bitcoin. Uh, but there are three things in place right now that I think are quite meaningful. Regulation, as you can see, the December 23rd regulation or yesterday's uh, decision by the Comptroller of Currency to allow these stable coins to go through the system. Uh, secondarily, the architecture is in place now to store the stuff easily uh, in an unhackable space. As an example, the Skybridge Bitcoin Fund is using Fidelity digital assets. And so that is a major upgrade to anything that was uh, existing prior. Uh, and the third reason, I think this is the most comp compelling reason, Bitcoin is one. If you take a look at crypto assets or digital forms of uh, storage of value, Bitcoin at $550 billion now uh, has beaten the competitors. It was probably hit or attacked 6,500 times uh, since its inception 12 years ago. Uh, and here we are now with an encrypted technology, which is effectively a ledger. And as you and I both know, when you study the history of money, that's all money really is. It's a ledger. Uh, it's defended by tens of millions of people that are supporting the system. As an example, SkyBridge has an active technological node uh, attached to the Bitcoin ecosphere. Uh, and so for us, we're very confident. I've obviously got a great relationship with Michael Saylor and uh, Tyler and Campbell, Cameron Winklevoss, and I worked with Mike Novogratz closely at Goldman Sachs uh, years ago. Uh, and while it took us a long time to make the decision, uh, we came in in a, in a very big way for SkyBridge. We put $25 million of the firm's capital into the SkyBridge Bitcoin fund, and we now have over $310 million of Bitcoin 
across our platform. Uh, and I would encourage people to go to skybridgebitcoin.com to see all of the research, the white paper, and the analysis that we've done as to why we see Bitcoin becoming a digital form of gold uh, in the ensuing years and why uh, it will be volatile. Uh, I have no doubt about that, uh, but I think its ascendancy is real, and I expect it to be uh, closing in on gold over the next 10 to 15 years, so it having a fi $500 billion market cap, gold, of course, having a $10 trillion one. $500 billion. So, Anthony, who are the people that have come in post the, the, the Skybridge in, 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 uh, influx of, of funds into the fund? Are they institutional investors or retail investors? Well, it's certainly open to institutions, but I we've uh, Skybridge has made its way uh, predominantly what I would call the mass affluent. Those would be accredited or qualified investors. And just to take you back 30 seconds on the history of Skybridge, we democratized the hedge fund space by having a $50,000 minimum mm. on our fund of funds. And so you could get access to hedge funds that way. We've done the same thing here with the Bitcoin fund. It's a $50,000 minimum. You've got to be a, a qualified investor to... Uh, so that would buy you a fund. whole... Uh, if, you, if you were just to put that straight into Bitcoin, it would buy you a whole coin and a bit. <laughs> yes, that's correct. That's, that's correct. It's probably buying you about 1.8 coins right now, thereabout. Uh, uh, but listen, you know, I, 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 I want this to be a, a buy and hold strategy for our investors. The mm. fund has a three year, I'm sorry, a three month lockup, uh, but we're also charging only 75 basis points. And so if you compare it to something like Grayscale, which is charging 2%, and of course, if you want to come into Grayscale's product, you have to pay that premium because it's trading on the pink sheets at a 25 to 30% premium to where the underlying asset is actually trading. And so in, so in the Skybridge situation, we're trying to make this as investor-friendly as possible. Mm. You can come directly into the fund. You own the, the Bitcoin itself. It's stored up at Fidelity. Uh, and you have all those safety uh, mechanisms uh, associated with our fund management. Anthony, I think you know, we've talked to a lot of folks on, on Bitcoin. And I think if I could boil it down to the simplest of bull cases, limited supply and presumably growing demand. Is that the fundamental bull case for, for you guys? Well, I think it's the technology as well. So I would say limited supply, uh, growing demand, because people recognize that fiat currency has been damaged by the central banking system uh, uh, through their coordination to try to stave off these boom and bust cycles. Uh, and I think you have just an example, you have 25% increase in U.S dollar money supply in the last six months. So so it's a combination of macro forces, uh, scarcity, and the acceptability of that digital ledger, uh, the notion that that ledger is impregnable uh, through, the, um, through the blockchain. So if you take all those things, you study the history of money, and you study the evolution of where we are right now, Bitcoin is portable, it's easier to store than gold. Uh, and as a result of which, if you really understand human beings, all we have is a ledger between each other. And so now this has become an acceptable form of that. And as a result of which, I think it's going to, uh, uh, it's, it's going to replace gold ultimately. For, for, you know, for my children, my adult children that are in their mid-20s, they see it as a better version of gold. Anthony, we're pretty much out of time, but talk to us just uh, for a moment about Skybridge and the relationship with China. Is there going to be you know, any kind of partnership with any Chinese firms in the future or whatever happened post the HNA uh, episode? 
So, you know, CFIUS uh, blocked that deal. Uh, the uh, the federal government made a decision, and again, it wasn't personal to SkyBridge. I think it was more uh, uh, centric to the Chinese-U.S. relationship, a result of which uh, we disbanded that deal. We were thinking about doing a joint venture, and then because of what's going on between the United States and China at this moment, it wasn't practical. So there's nothing in the near future, uh, you know, but I'm a long-term oriented person, uh, I do believe that the United States needs to have a very strong bilateral relationship with China, notwithstanding our differences. And so who, who, who's to say that we couldn't have a SkyBridge SALT conference in Beijing or Shanghai someday? Well, uh, I want to be open-minded to that. Speaking of which, those SALT talks continuing all the time. They're virtual talks now, and uh, anyone can, can get in. And uh, unfortunately, we're on the air during some of them, so aren't able to listen to all of them. But Anthony, thank you very much for joining today. Congratulations on the launch of SkyBridge's new SkyBridge Bitcoin Fund. Anthony Scaramucci, founder of SkyBridge Capital. Bitcoin trading above $30, uh, $30,000 at the moment. But uh, JP Morgan talking about it going to $146,000. And that's just in a note today. So fascinating conversations around Bitcoin. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Well, I know there's one question that I deeply, deeply want to know from you, Paul, and that is, what did you watch on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, and was it Wonder Woman 1984? It was not. It was probably (laughs) sports pretty much across the board, but uh, I tell you, people are consuming movies, Vani, so much differently post-pandemic than uh, than we were just, you know, several months ago. Okay, but I'm just going to push a little further. Did you watch or even attempt to watch Wonder Woman 1984? I did not. All right. Well, I did. <laughs> I must say this and? this idea that it was on HBO Max, yes. meaning that you didn't have to go to the theater. It reeled me in, I have to say. And I, I tried to watch. I didn't make it all the way through, which is unusual. But uh, nevertheless, it did make me go back and watch Wonder Woman 1. And essentially what I'm trying to say is that given that it was easier just to sit at home and watch it, then, you know, yes. that meant that I watched it at home and I didn't go out to the movie theater. And the movie theater business has been in a shocking state, really just suffering the slings and arrows of this outrageous pandemic over the last 12 months all around the world and we've seen it in many of the stocks and of course our next guest has had to suffer that too Paul. Yeah absolutely I mean I think that the theatre business has been just so hit so hard Vani because two reasons obviously uh, stay at home the quarantines and then number two uh, there's just much, much, much less content in the theaters uh, as we see the studios really releasing even their A-list blockbuster content uh, direct to consumers on their streaming services as companies like Disney, the the biggest uh, studio in Hollywood, really um, pivoting the company itself uh, to uh, streaming. 
And even, you know, stunts like Tom Cruise going to the movie theatre in public, filmed, cannot bring people back to the theatre if there's a lockdown happening, which right now is the case in London and in Germany and in some places in the United States. So let's bring in the person who has been really trying to weather this for IMAX. He is the CEO of IMAX, and that is Richard Gelfond. And Richard, thank you very much for joining us today. You know, it's it's been a tough, tough year in your industry. I wonder if you see any glimmers of hope for your industry right now. Yeah, I do, Vani. And in fact, um, you know, we've fared better than almost anyone because um, we have a, two reasons. One, we have a global footprint rather than North America-based. And two, um, because we do blockbuster movies, um, both of which have managed to do okay during this. So first, the global part, we're in 82 countries, and particularly in Asia, where the theaters have been open for months, generally since September, um, things have gone quite well. So you look at China, for example, just this past weekend for New Year's, it was the biggest New Year's weekend we ever had. We did a film called Shockwave 2, and we were 22% of the Chinese box office on 1% of the screens. Um, For all of December, um, we were up 28%, which is also quite impressive. And in the third quarter, um, we were flat to last year, and all that is without Hollywood films. So I'd say it's beyond a glimmer of hope. I think when people feel safe and the films are available, they're going to go back to the movies. To us, it's not much of a question because we've, you know, our our vision is well beyond the shores of North America. So, Richard, give us a sense um, in your discussions with the Hollywood studios. Um, to what extent do you think they will revert to the typical windowing, if you will, and put most of their you know, A-list films with a theatrical window as opposed to going uh, direct to their streaming services? How do you think this is going to play out on the other side? Yeah, I think the way you framed the question, Paul, when you said A-list uh, movies, I think virtually all of the A-list movies will still be released theatrically. I think maybe some of the smaller movies won't be, but the economics are just going to be overwhelming um, to do that. I mean, you look at what Disney announced at their investor day, and pretty much every blockbuster film, the kinds of films that IMAX does, they announced were staying theatrical, and whether that was Black Widow or whether it was the other Marvel movies or um, whether it was Jungle Cruise or some of the Pixar movies, they move them, and all of the other films, blockbusters that were scheduled theatrically for this year, including um, Maverick, the Tom Cruise um, sequel to Top Gun, including um, uh, Bond, um, all of those have been moved in the year. So I, I just don't think that's an issue. I think there's a pandemic solution, which is to move some of them to streaming, and I get that. It makes sense. And then there's a post-pandemic solution, and as I said um, earlier in answer to your first question, if it's not a pandemic, I think it's going to go back to the way it was. You mentioned, Richard, 1,600 theatres across 82 countries. Have you had to work with the local you know, providers or franchisees or however it works to make the theatres more amenable during a pandemic time? Have you had to separate seating more? Have you had to get rid of you know, the, the, the uh, merchandise areas and the consignment areas and so on? Well, we license our technology around the world, so it's up to the operator in each country to comply with local regulation. 
But, of course, we've had to be involved in that. And, yes, there has been capacity restrictions. So even today in, in Asia, where I indicated we're doing so well, that's with 75% capacity limitations that are still in place. And in North America, where the theaters have been open, that's typically been 25% capacity. In some cases, maybe 50%. And the whole cinema industry has worked on things like requiring masks, um, upgrading ventilation systems, separate entrances and separate exits to make people feel more comfortable. Right. Hey, Richard, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Richard Gelfond, CEO of IMAX, uh, based on Long Island, New York, giving us his update of the theater business in a pandemic world. Looking forward to the other side. Let's get now to the outlook for what might happen beyond Georgia's outcome. Gina Martin-Adams, the Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Gina, you obviously came out with a look ahead for the whole year right before the end of last year. But I'm curious as to just in the very short term, how are investors positioned for today's Senate runoffs? Yeah, I think in general, as investors have ignored the idea that we could still have a blue wave impacting Washington. I think we tried to price in a blue wave prior to the election. We then priced it out. Um, now investors are kind of grappling with this idea that, oh, maybe we will end up having a blue wave. And what does that mean? What does it mean in particular for tech stocks and multinationals is the really big question, because it doesn't necessarily need to alter the overall direction of the equity market. But if we do have a blue wave wash over Washington, we most likely will have a little bit of an alteration of sort of sector, thematic, maybe even style performance going forward. Yeah, I mean, if that's the case, Gina, I mean, is there going to be an obvious change in sort of the overall indices beyond tomorrow if if the market gets a result it doesn't expect? Well, if we do have a blue wave, the biggest, uh, most obvious change is that we will likely see fiscal policy paid for through corporate tax rate increase, and most likely a lot of that corporate tax rate increase will fall on the shoulders of multinational companies, in particular large cap tech companies. So what I would expect to see if we do see um, both seats go to the Democrats, which, by the way, I don't think we'll know tomorrow. I think it's going to be an extended period of counting votes once again, and we're going to have to sort of price this in over a period of time. But if it does look like both seats go to the Democratic candidates and the Senate shifts uh, to Democratic majority in that case, we most likely will see corporate tax reform. And the result of that is going to be probably a loss of significant momentum for big cap tech stocks, which had a pretty significant comeback in the month of December, really erasing a lot of the weakness that had emerged prior to the election. Will the market be quite confident that if the two seats go Democrat, that the Biden administration will be able to enact whatever legislation it decides? I mean, even if both seats go Democrat, it will be a pretty, pretty sliver thin uh, majority. Yeah. And as a result of that is most likely we get a bigger fiscal spending package than we had priced in. Most likely we get some form of corporate tax reform. Um, most likely you see a move toward alternative energy sources uh, funded at the federal level. It, it just increases the likelihood. It doesn't necessarily mean we price in everything on the Biden agenda, um, but it certainly gives it a better possibility of happening or an increased probability of happening, which 
was not in the market consensus as of December. Mm. Gina, given that it's going to be a Biden administration, will the, 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 the political headlines have you know less of an impact on this market than did the Trump presidency, would you imagine? I suspect so. I think the big shift that we're talking less about, but we probably should be talking more about, is what's happened, what's likely to happen with trade and with the dollar. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that was sort of underappreciated in the environment of volatility that we had in 2018, 2019, and in 2020 was how much the dollar strength contributed to asset allocation and equity market performance globally, as well as equity market performance even in the United States. Um, the result of uh, more visible or clearer trade policy, less uncertainty with respect to trade, probably is one of the key contributors to the dollar's recent turnover. As investors are more risk tolerant, they see a more visible environment, a more predictable environment for trade, that's starting to impact asset allocation globally, benefiting emerging market stocks over U.S. stocks as a good example. Um, that dollar weakness has also emerged improving risk-taking uh, globally. The dollar strengthens, obviously, in an environment of fear, an environment of risk-taking. The dollar gets the flight to quality benefit. That tends to benefit large-cap stocks in the U.S. over small caps. We're seeing a reversal of that trade as well. So I do think that there are um, quite a bit of opportunity, quite, is quite a bit of an opportunity for the dollar to continue to drop. Uh, as we see some of that risk intolerance that emerged in the last two years of the Trump administration get reversed. And Gina, we're pretty much out of time, but Janet Yellen as Treasury Secretary, is that going to make a material difference to these markets? I I think it did. You know, we obviously saw once the announcement came in um, several weeks back, we saw the markets uh, put in a bit of a relief rally. You know, she's a steady hand. It was very clear that she was a steady hand at the Fed. We have another steady hand assured now at at the Treasury as a result. We'll see what the policy shift uh, looks like as a result of a Yellen Treasury. Um, I don't know that that's terribly predictable. Are we going to see a massive policy shift or not? But I do think the markets um, are soothed by the certainty of having that steady hand at the helm. All right, Gina, thank you and Happy New Year. Gina Martin Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before, like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. WTI crude still just below $50 a barrel, but in the last couple of hours, we did have a top $50 a barrel for the first time in months and months and months. And now, according to a delegate, we have an OPEC plus deal on February output, at least. No better time to bring in Stephen Shork, president of the Shork Group and editor of the Shork Report. Stephen, you'll have been following the headlines all morning, but we have officially now from a delegate the word that Saudi Arabia will voluntarily cut output. Russia and Kazakhstan will increase output at least for the month of February. Was this always a done deal? Uh, well, I think certainly the uh, 
the, the prospects of a production increase uh, were, were certainly limited. Uh, so the fact that the Saudis are kicking in, so we'll have a net zero sum for February, does, uh, I think, fall within expectations. The market has been uh, moving up on these uh, moves over the past, uh, well, the past half of uh, December. We did sell off smartly yesterday when it looked like we were going to get a production increase. Uh, that has gone by the wayside now, and the market's correct and higher. To your point, WTI now is touched uh, $50 a barrel. Let's keep in mind, there's nothing magical about $50 a barrel other than the fact that it's got a five in its handle. It's just a psychological number. That said, uh, we're still at levels that we are well below uh, a year ago at this point. So effectively, we've had a nice rally, a rebound in the fourth quarter, but uh, we're no better off today than where we are at the back of the uh, start of this, uh, well, the start of last year, I should say. Another headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal uh, as it relates to energy. The foreign, uh, Saudi foreign minister says Arab states to fully restore uh, Qatar ties. So some more news out of the Mideast. We'll have more on that coming up. Uh, Stephen, it kind of brings us back to the demand picture. We're seeing uh, the UK uh, enter into another lockdown here. What's the view of the of the energy marketplace, the oil marketplace on kind of the, the, the demand picture over the next, uh, call it six to 12 months? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're, we've now entered a, a new era of uh, oil demand. The elasticity of demand are in the process of changing forever. That, of course, is related to the introduction of substitutes into the market, electric vehicles. We also have the introduction of a variable that uh, was on no one's radar a year ago, and that is the change in dynamics in commuters. Uh, we're still, a good portion of us are still working from our homes. When we do get back to some sor- uh, semblance of normalcy, uh, many compute commuters are, are not going back. They're going to continue to work from home. So it's completely changing di- dynamics uh, with regard to the the introduction of something other than gasoline and our changing appetite for gasoline. So demand clearly will, on a year-over-year basis, improve. That's just a function of how poor demand was over the past year. But clearly, uh, we're looking at a, a change in dynamic uh, where demand is going to be mutual for the foreseeable future. Saudi clearly, you know, had to be the one to cut output in order for the likes of Russia and Kazakhstan to boost output a little bit. How much will this put a dent in Saudi resources for the foreseeable future, Stephen? Is is it a, a nasty setback for them? Uh, actually, no. I think uh, Saudi has already been more market share oriented as opposed to uh, price level oriented. So, so uh, what the Saudis are doing is, is clearly we're looking at, look, oil's not going away anytime in, in anyone's lifetime uh, uh, on this call. Uh, but that said, uh, the, the market share is going to continue to dwindle. So Saudi Arabia is protecting its share in the global market. Uh, so it's taking a short term hit for longer-term preservation. Stephen, what have we seen from the U.S. Uh, producers you know, over the last several months, and what's the expectation for them as we think about supply in 2021? Well, producers uh, last summer uh, did a yeoman's job in cutting production. Uh, clearly, uh, this had to be done with the market signals. Uh, we're starting to see a rebound and a, a stabilization in production at around 11 million barrels a day. We're looked to hold steady at this point. From a pricing standpoint, when we were back, back yeah, at, at the worst of it, we were below $30 a barrel. Uh, that wasn't even enough to keep the current rigs, producing rigs, uh, 
online. Now that WTI is in that mid uh, mid to high $40 range, uh, we're clearly looking at a stabilization in production. We will not see any new production uh, from the U.S. producer unless we get sustained prices, WTI prices, in that mid to high $50 range. I'm a little skeptical we can get that high. But from a U.S. production standpoint, uh, they've been able to weather the worst of it at this point. With oil price now in that $50 range, that's more in the wheelhouse. Of course, the current risk at this point now is a second wave of lockdowns, which will exacerbate demand decay. And let's not lose sight of the fact that Iran is now back in the headlines. Any sort of easing of sanctions with Iran with the new administration will allow Iranian and by an extent, Venezuelan oil to be reintroduced to the market, adding more supply to the market. And clearly, this is something that is on the radar of Saudi Arabia, and hence their decision to try and uh, keep supply at a reasonable level as we roll into the new administration here in the U.S. Hey, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, great timing here to get you on to talk uh, global oil as WTI briefly hits $50 uh, per barrel today. We appreciate it. Stephen Short, President of the Short Group, editor of the Short Report, based in Villanova, Pennsylvania. We appreciate him coming on. Ivani, a big day uh, in the energy markets, getting uh, you know the Saudis uh, to cut production slightly. Um, that is certainly bullish for the price of global crude oil. Uh, the issue will be, I think, you know, what we're hearing from the likes of Stephen Short is going to be uh, demand going forward, and that will be a, a key driver, as always. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.